Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 88. After Hours with Dr. Harry Lee Poe, Part 1. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where David, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we eavesdropped on Screwtape's letters and listened in on his toast. We then read The Silver Chair, but now we're just interviewing interesting guests. And today we're joined by Dr. Harry Lee Poe. Dr. Poe has a PhD from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, serves as the Charles Colson Professor of Faith and Culture at Union University, where he has taught a course on Lewis for almost 20 years. He is the author of The Inklings of Oxford and C.S. Lewis Remembered, as well as many articles and chapters on Lewis. Dr. Poe leads the Inklings Fellowship in, and its retreats at Montreat and Oxford, and is also a frequent speaker at universities, conferences, churches, and libraries on Lewis and the Inklings. Dr. Poe, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you. It's good to be with you, Matt. Is there anything I missed out on the background information? Yes, just call me Hal. <laughs> I love it. What's the origins of Hal? Uh, I'm named for my uncle, my grandfather, and my great-grandfather, who was born in 1856, when Hal was a nickname for Harris. Oh, wow. So I'm the fourth. That's fantastic. That goes way back. I love it. goes it. way back. Mm-hmm. Old family name. We, we say that the Poes are a poor family and can't afford many names, so we just keep recycling <laughs> the same names. That is so good. And David and I first met you at the C.S. Lewis Symposium in Montreal a couple years ago. And before we yes. recorded, we were just catching up on a lot has happened between a pandemic from when we last saw each other. Yes, a gorgeous, a gorgeous location, a grand venue, and a, and a fabulous conference. Oh, the, the speakers were incredible. And you were one of them, and you gave a talk on science and technology, Lewis. Well, it was something that fascinated Lewis. Um, you know, he had a dread of math but he had a fascination for science, particularly physics. Okay. Wasn't he bad at math? <laughs> he was bad at math. Um, and that goes back to his experience at Winyard School. The schoolmaster there, who had been certified insane by a British court, was the math teacher. And if you got the answer to the question wrong, he would beat you with a, <laughs> with a stick. If you got the question right he would still beat you with a stick. And so Lewis, as a, as a boy, as a child, uh, was taught to hate and dread math. But he actually had um, a mathematical mind. One of my colleagues here, Professor Matt Lunsford, a mathematics professor, uh, did a, uh, a paper for the symposium at Taylor University several years ago on Lewis's uh, aptitude for math that's reflected in a number of things that he wrote and he said. But I think that happens with a lot of people. We we may have an aptitude that is beaten out of us by a, um, a teacher who may not have been very constructive. Well, it's a bummer that we lost that side, but at least we got so much of Lewis's other talents, right? Yeah, we like his literary side, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> And you finished, David mentioned to me, um, if I'm correct, that you just recently finished an Inklings weekend? Well, we're getting ready to have it uh, July okay. 9th through 11th in, uh, in Montreat, there again in the high in the Smoky Mountains, locally called the Smokies. Uh, we know it better as uh, the Misty Mountains and um, Rivendale. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you've never been to that part of the country, it's absolutely gorgeous. It really is. I actually, at the Montreat, uh, the symposium a couple of years ago, I woke up in the morning and went for a a trail run hike up uh, to the top of the mountains and watched the sunrise. And it was one of the most beautiful ways to start the day and then to come down and listen to the talks. Mm. Well, you know who who lived at the top of that mountain? No. Billy Graham. No way. Yes, yes. Um he, he was married to Ruth Bell Graham. Uh, her father was a missionary to China. And, uh, of course, they were expelled from China during the communist takeover in the late 1940s. And uh, Montreat is the old Presbyterian conference center 
So her father moved to, to Montreat, and there the the Grahams couldn't afford uh, property down in Montreat proper, so they had to go buy land up on top of the mountain. And uh, so she she collected up old log houses scattered around uh, back in the hills and uh, essentially put them all together into one big house. And that's where they lived uh, their entire life uh, oh my after goodness. they were married. I wish I would have known that when I was there. Yeah, well. I'll have to, it's just a good reason to go back. It is. <laughs> Check it out. Yes. Well, we've got lots to talk about, particularly with this this uh, part of the episode. We're going to be diving into your book, Becoming C.S. Lewis, a biography of young Jack Lewis. But let me get out of the way our quote of the week before we jump in. And I took this one from your book. Thus, the quest for something pricked the heart of young Jack Lewis, and he would not know why until he was many years older than where this book ends. The point is that his life story would not have had the same plot had he not fallen in love with this story. And I don't I didn't actually realize this when I picked the quote of the week for the next part. It practically answered this quote of the week. And that was that was unintentional, but as I was going through it, they they just stuck out to me as a really primary way to think about this. Well, you're brilliant because you have found the connection between the two volumes. It's this <laughs> it's this story plot that he fell in love with, this kind of story that that um gripped him. And we'll talk about that a little bit. It must have been an author that made it very apparent through their writing. And that's why it jumped out to me. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's jump in. Uh, but before getting into the book, let's talk a little bit about just your relationship with Lewis and how you first came across him. I first learned of Lewis uh, when I was in my mid-20s, um, not until I started seminary had I ever heard of C.S. Lewis. So I was 25. A friend at seminary had a a copy of a book, Images of His World. You may know of it. It's a a coffee table book with lots of pictures of Oxford and Belfast and places where Lewis uh, went. And I was flipping through that book and um, I didn't know who he was. I was fascinated by the pictures and the romance of Oxford. And my friend said, well, he was a Christian writer. My mind was thinking Sinclair Lewis. Uh, Sinclair Lewis was a Christian. What about that? And he said, no, 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 C.S. Lewis. And he said, Chronicles of Narnia. Well, I'd never heard of the Chronicles of Narnia. It was at seminary that I first heard about him. The first of his books that I began to read was Mere Christianity. I loved the first half of it, but then it seemed goodness, he changed the subject, and I couldn't figure out what kind of a book this was. And uh, so I read the first half and um, then put it down. Then when I was um, in my doctoral work, I had found out about the Chronicles, and one week I decided to read a volume each night. And so in one week I read the Chronicles of Narnia and was charmed, thoroughly charmed. And at the end of that summer, I went to... um, do research at Oxford, was part of Regent's Park College there. Uh, That was 1979. And so uh, uh, some friends of mine said that uh, I should host one of their friends who was doing work in Scotland but wanted to visit Oxford and all of the sites associated with the Inklings. Well, I had no idea who the Inklings were. And but anyway, she explained to me that the, the Inklings were C.S. Lewis and his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, and I didn't know Tolkien was a friend <laughs> of Lewis. So, um, though I was supposed to give her the tour of Oxford, she gave me the tour of Oxford, and um, I learned about all of these connections. I had not yet read uh, The Lord of the Rings. It seemed communist to me, these barefoot people smoking pipe weed and all of that sort of thing. So I was very suspicious back in the, my college days of these, these, this talk of hobbits. But um, the um, animated version of The Lord of the Rings had come out. And I saw that and I thought, well, this is fascinating. So I read The Lord of the Rings instead of studying for uh, my preliminary examinations for my PhD. <laughs> and it was much more profitable than studying 
for prelims would have been. I got much more out of it. It's, it's done me well the rest of my life. So I was only gradually getting interested in them. But my big concern in seminary and my, and my doctoral work was how do we communicate the gospel to a world that no longer has any biblical connection, no church connection, a thoroughly secularized world. And it seemed to me that Lewis understood that problem and was trying a number of different ways to reach the world. And so that became my my um, professional connection with Lewis. It wasn't so much to study Lewis and write about Lewis as it was a desire for me to learn from Lewis about how to continue what he was doing. And uh, not that I've, you know, I've met along the way a number of people who said, I'm going to be the next C.S. Lewis. Well, I've, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to be the next C.S. Lewis. I, 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 but in my writing, uh, I've done a lot of work on science and religion, uh, a lot of work on the integration of faith and learning, a lot of work on evangelism and apologetics. And in all of those areas, I, I realized some years ago that I quote Lewis extensively, and where I don't quote him, I try to put into practice some ideas that he had stated. So that has been my my connection with Lewis over the years. Then in 1998, I was asked by the C.S. Lewis Foundation to lead a seminar on apologetics in a post-modern world. Uh, that established a relationship with the foundation. I was served on their board uh, for a number of years and was the program director for the Summer Institute in 2002, 2005, and 2008, and um, have just continued on since then. I had to give a talk once, and a friend said something similar to me where he goes, can you just limit the talk to like four C.S. Lewis quotes? I'm like, sure. Because when you learn C.S. Lewis, you just, it's, it's, it's hard not to quote him. He's mm -hmm. just so fantastic. Well, he he was so insightful. He really had such a highly honed critical mind that he could recognize dynamics. But I do see in Lewis a model for how um, a Christian faculty member thinks about their discipline from a Christian perspective. And here's Lewis. He's a critic. He's a literary critic. And in his monumental work, The Allegory of Love, in which he traces um, really the Western literary tradition from the first century up through the 15th century. So the um, classical world, the collapse of the classical world, the medieval world, and then the decline of the medieval world into the modern world, he became a master at cultural critique and the recognition of those dynamics at work which build a culture and uh, destroy a culture. And so the critical work he was doing as a literary scholar then show up in his cultural analysis and his critique of the church and um, uh, as the overflow of his scholarly work. And so that, for me, is why Lewis is a, is a model for how to think about what does it mean to integrate faith and learning. A lot of people struggle with that. Listeners are probably like, Matt, ask some follow-up questions because that sounds really interesting. Don't worry, listeners. In the second part of this, I'm going to dive into the allegory of love because you wrote in your book, which I really want to unpack uh, in the next one, is uh, you thought you said this is the only work Lewis really ever wrote and all the rest were kind of flowed from it. I'm like, we're definitely going to talk about that because that's great. <laughs> yeah, that's my that's my provocative statement. The Allegory of Lo Love is the only book C.S. Lewis ever wrote. <laughs> I love it. So don't worry, listeners, we will dive more into that. Um, but first, before we get into uh, the specific book, The Becoming C.S. Lewis, uh, what's a bit of a high-level overview, so listeners, if they're intrigued, to go check out some of your other books, of The Inklings of Oxford and C.S. Lewis Remembered? Well, um, C.S. Lewis Remembered is a book I had not planned to do. This is it. I was concerned to know uh, if Lewis had any impact on his discipline. Hmm. We know his impact... Um, on popular Christianity, his work as an evangelist. I'm, I hold the Charles Colson Chair of Faith and Learning. Charles Colson was converted through reading Mere Christianity. Um, so we know all about that, but 
did he actually have any impact at all on the study of English literature? And so I ran down a number of his former students to see, well, who were they? What, what could they tell me about Lewis as a teacher? And so this book is a collection of um, memoirs, memories of people who either studied with Lewis or knew him when he was a professor. And in fact, he had a monumental impact on really the direction of literary criticism, but also through his students. For instance, um, Brown Patterson, who was one of his American uh, pupils, they say, rather than students, pupils. <laughs> he was a Rhodes Scholar and studied with Lewis um, those last two years in Oxford before Lewis went to Cambridge. He eventually became the dean of uh, the University of the South at Sewanee, the Episcopal Liberal Arts College there in, in uh, East Tennessee. Hmm. On and on, do it. Derek Brewer, who was one of those um, young uh, men who met with uh, Lewis and Dyson in a supper club in the um, late 1940s, was uh, one of those who had dinner with Lewis a few nights after the so-called debate with, with Elizabeth Anscombe at the Socratic Club. And no way. <laughs> no way. grubbing about how that had gone. Well, Brewer went on to become the master of Emmanuel College, Cambridge, one of the great colleges of Cambridge, and, and in his own right, a great literary scholar, Alistair Fowler at the University of Edinburgh, one of the great Renaissance scholars of the uh, second half of the 20th century. So on and on and on it goes. I can't don't have time to name them all. But anyway, that's what that is. And it's um, a book like Jim Como's uh, C.S. Lewis at the Breakfast Table or Light on C.S. Lewis, Jocelyn Gibbs' uh, book. It's a collection of, of um, memoirs. Now, the other book that I hadn't planned on doing, this is a coffee table book. It's not a scholarly book, but it's a, a quick and a simple uh, story of Lewis and the Inklings, lavishly illustrated. Um, I brag on it because I didn't do the photography. My colleague, Jim <laughs> Veneman, who is professor of photojournalism at Union, did the photography, and it's absolutely stunning. I wanted a book that tourists in Oxford would buy as their memory book from Oxford that would, in the subtext, explain why Lewis, Tolkien, Dyson were Christians. So it's a, an experiment in Lewis's idea that in apologetics, what we need is not more little Christian books, but more little cr books by Christians on every subject with the Christianity latent. So that's the experiment. Whether or not it succeeds, I, I don't know, but um, it was a, it was fun to do it. <laughs> I like that you're, you're sneaking under their guards. They're buying it just to be looking at photos of Oxford and without them realizing it, they're being evangelized. That's yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. So turning to the book of this conversation, Becoming C.S. Lewis, uh, what was the the inspiration to write this book? What brought this about? <laughs> well, this is another book I hadn't planned on doing. Um, <laughs> is there any that you did plan on doing? Well, yes, my my other my my <laughs> other sixteen <laughs> books I planned on doing, but these these Lewis books I had not actually planned. In fact, I'd encouraged other people to do them, and when they didn't, I I did. But this book um, somehow a discussion had come up about. Lewis loved to eat. It's something he comments on a number of times, the joy of the pleasure of food and the, the dinner table. And he, he liked food. That's a, that's a good thing. Food is one of the great pleasures. It's one of the marvels of the, the human race. You know, the poor panda bear, it'll only eat one thing. Uh, but, but humans will eat almost anything. You know, this huge range. And we don't eat just to sustain life. It's great pleasure. And so I think there's, uh, uh, that's a part of divine grace to us, is the simple pleasures that uh, Screwtape warns uh, Wormwood about in, in the Screwtape letters. You don't want humans appreciating small pleasures. With all of that, I didn't know what he liked to eat. And I thought, well, I don't remember him mentioning anything other than Turkish delight, 
Um, but he didn't actually say he liked that. And in fact, Lewis was not much on sweets. Hmm. So um, he would have seen the Turkish delight as selling your birthright for a bowl of pottage. Um, so uh, I thought, well, now how can I find out what he liked to eat? I'll, I'll look through the letters and see if he ever mentions anything he liked to re eat in the letters. So I started at the beginning as a little boy. And it was not until he was, what, 16 years old, and he had just gone to Great Bookham to live with W.T. Kirkpatrick. And his first morning there, he woke up and he went downstairs, and Mrs. Kirkpatrick had baked good old Irish soda bread. And he waxed eloquent on the joys of good old Irish soda bread. And he wasn't homesick anymore. And this was in a letter to Arthur Greaves. But by that point, I realized, oh my goodness, in his late childhood and adolescence, Lewis essentially set his trajectory for his entire life. The things he loved, the things he hated, what he enjoyed, his pleasures, um, what annoyed him, even his literary tastes were all pretty much established by the time he was 16, 17 years old. And I thought, well, that's fascinating. And uh, that was the idea for the book. And fortunately, Crossway thought, well, that's an interesting story because it's really not been told. But And it's it's uh, simply a matter of economy of pages, a normal biography just doesn't have room to talk about the teenage years. You want to go on and get to the important stuff. But um, I thought this really is an, an important story that needs to be told. So Crossway let me tell that story. This is jumping ahead a little bit, but it's you are correct that it was one that I was not familiar with because, as I had mentioned before we started recording, I was shocked with how different C.S. Lewis was from how I just knew him because most of my experience with C.S. Lewis was either sort of surprised by joy or reading his works and more of his post-conversion life. And he seems to be an incredibly disciplined, incredibly generous, incredibly kind, compassionate, empathetic um, type of person. And then you read like the up to 18 years old. I mean, there was an arrogance, there was a snobbery, there was pride there. Um, gluttony, there was um, jealousy. And I was like, holy cow, this is a completely different C.S. Lewis than I was expecting. He was an obnoxious little twit. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> and his his father and brother were seriously concerned about him. Uh -huh. They were they were very concerned that he was going to wind up being a a, a, a social disaster and a, and just have a ruined life. They, they were seriously concerned. And we have the letters uh, between his father and his brother that discuss Lewis. They began to call him it. <laughs> <laughs> if that doesn't say it all. Yeah, that's, uh, yes, it, it says it. It says it all. So his conversion really does illustrate the dramatic, the supernatural drama of, of conversion. His is as dramatic as any I have any acquaintance with. I was a um, prison chaplain for eight years. I'd been a pastor. I was a professional politician for a number of years before I entered the ministry. I, I've looked at life from both sides now, <laughs> from in and out, and still somehow Sin manifests itself in a variety of ways, and he was as dreadful a sinner as is possible to be. But the nice sins, not the ones you go to jail for, uh, the ones we tolerate in church, the ones that destroy lives, destroy families, destroy cultures, the nice sins. <laughs> The diabolical sins of the spirit. Yeah, because it is funny how we always pay attention to the sins of the flesh. Yeah. And those are the ones as a society we tend to judge as well. And actually, it was Lewis the first person who ever made me, of course, you don't want to do either of the sins, but to raise that uh, my attention to the fact that, you know what, sometimes the sins of the flesh, while they're not good and it'd be great to not do them, aren't as bad as the sins of the spirit because they're not necessarily pitting one person against another person. Someone getting drunk 
No, it's, it's something we don't want, but you know, a lot of times we're doing it with someone else and there's some great conversation and fellowship. You know, that's better than some prideful, arrogant prig. Um, but like you said, those aren't the ones we notice as much. We notice uh, the drunkard or person giving into sexual temptation constantly and, and these kind of things. And so we'll see Lewis explore this in, uh, in uh, the Screwtape Letters and in The Great Divorce, but also in the Chronicles of Narnia. Hmm. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis is much more like Cousin Eustace than he is like the High King Peter. I never thought that actually until you just pointed that out. That is so true. Guys, he really is like Eustace when you read this this first book. It does. I, I never thought of that. That's a great connection. And he, he understood Eustace. He knew Eustace. He, he, Eustace was an easy character to write. <laughs> it does but make he sense. Also, understood uh, how painful Eustace's conversion was, having the dragon skin, the dragon hide clawed off of him mm. by Aslan. And so that's uh, a, bi- a bit of the story that is in the second volume. And it explains a lot, which is so powerful about your book and, and very inspiring about both of them going through the two volumes is the role that grace can play in our lives and explains why Lewis was so relatable because he wasn't perfect. In fact, he was very far from it. And then by the grace of God, by divine providence in this conversion, he was able to overcome a lot of these vices. And I think that's a, I always love encouraging messages like that because myself and probably many others, sometimes we have those parts of ourselves that constantly keep rearing their ugly head and are like, you know what? This is hopeless. And that's such a dangerous thought to think that this is hopeless because it never is. And so I actually really did enjoy that about uh, your two volumes because I saw that in Lewis. And I'm like, you know what? If he went from that to that, there is still hope for me. <laughs> God is not done yet. Yeah, yeah. So let's dive in now to what I would love to do with this is a few of the just key sections from this book here. And I split it up into the pre-Malvern days, Malvern, and then Kirkpatrick. And so let's start with the the pre-Malvern days. So his, his earliest days, and you mentioned, if I'm saying this right, Waynard. Did I get that correct? Winyard. Winyard. There we go. Thank Winyard you. Winyard School. Yeah, yeah. And so what was that period of Lewis, Lewis's life? Well, his, his childhood was an idyllic childhood. He had a happy childhood. There was uh, love. There was encouragement. It's hard to look for anything negative in his childhood until his mother dies of cancer. Mm. And that's when he's nine years old. But until then, it was just grand. Uh, His family were um, on the ascendancy. The Lewises came from humble background in Wales, and they were climbing the social ladder. His mother's family, the Hamiltons, were um, lower gentry, and in the pedigree, there were um, her father was a was a clergyman. Her grandfather was a bishop, uh, but farther back in the family, there were cousins who were nobility, minor lobi- nobility, baronets, and her her uh, favorite cousin was married to a baronet, and uh, that family would. Um, in a sense, take the, the Lewis boys under their wing once the uh, once um, Flora Lewis died, and so uh, you you've got the two different sides. Flora Lewis um, was anxious that her sons would continue to rise, and she insisted that they get an English education rather than an Irish education. That the key to their future would be the way they spoke. Hmm. And so if they had an Irish accent, they were doomed. And they had to have that Irish accent knocked out of them in an English boarding school. So when she died, Jack, as he was called, was um, sent off to Winyard School with his brother, Warney. Warney had already been there for a couple of years. For Jack Lewis, boarding school was like concentration camp. And he was using pretty vile language to describe it. Um, but the, the headmaster was uh, certifiably in, uh, insane. Uh, by certifiable, I do mean 
a British court had ruled that he was insane, and yet he was still running this school. Wow. And um, he uh, beat the boys terribly. And uh, uh, like many Englishmen of that period, he hated the Irish. And the English didn't make a distinction between the Irish Catholics and the Irish Protestants. Irish was Irish. It was all the same. They were all troublemakers. They were all subhuman. Uh, when mm. I was at Oxford, um, one of the tutors there uh, actually referred to the Irish as animals. This was in the 1970s. Wow. <laughs> so, so you've got this long tradition of viewing the Irish as just substandard. And so Lewis, in turn, hated the English. He despised the English. And he, he had a, 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 a sliding scale. The closer to London you were, the worse you were. The farther from London you were, the better you were. So that if you were on the border of Scotland, you were almost tolerable. <laughs> but um, he hated the English. And he, he, um, he would carry that with him for decades, that, that despising of the, the English. But he, he gradually got over that and uh, shifted to despising the Americans. <laughs> like we said, he was a lovely chap back then. He was I... a lovely child. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so his experience at school was, was awful, um, and it would get worse. One of the things that distinguishes um, humans from uh, lower animals, we have a thumb that will do that. It will bend. It has an, uh, an extra joint. And because of that extra joint, tool making occurs and basket weaving and all sorts of things and technology is off and running. Jack and Warney Lewis did not have that jointed thumb. They could only move the thumb from the, uh, the lower joint, which meant they were clumsy. Uh, Jack couldn't use scissors to cut and paste little art projects that children do in kindergarten and in elementary school. He couldn't catch a ball, throw a ball, handle a bat, and that carried over to a general clumsiness on the playing uh, uh, yard. And as a result, in a culture in which if you're not good at sports, you have no right to exist. Mm -hmm. Lewis was despised by the other boys. And so um, to fight back, he said, well, if I can't win on the playing field, by golly, I'll win in the classroom. And that's when he set himself to become an intellectual snob. And, um, and that's, that's what he was. I mean, he, he really was. And in Surprised by Joy, he, he refers to himself as a prig. Uh, that's not a word most Americans can relate to. It's not a term we use. And so you have to use a, a lot of words to get at that. But it is an obnoxious little twit, an intellectual snob, um, someone just who really deserves to have their uh, head beaten in with a stick. Uh, but that's what he's saying when he says that I was a prig. Um, it's a confession that most Americans, I think, will, will miss. But it's, it's um, one that then alienated him even more from uh, the boys uh, at school. So he was a loner and he had no friends. If you can imagine going all your life to the age of 16 without any friends. Now, he had a cousin, Joey, Joseph Lewis, who would eventually become a, a, a doctor, and he had his brother. But outside of those two, he had no friends. Most formidable years of your life. It's pretty grim. It's mm -hmm. pretty grim. And it didn't get any better, I'm correct, with in the Malvern days either, did it? Oh, it got worse at Malvern. Yeah. Because at Malvern, at, at least at Wynyard, everyone was enduring the misery of the headmaster, uh, the Reverend Mr. Capron. To make matters worse, he was a clergyman. He was an ordained minister. So here's someone Oof. beating you in the name of Jesus and and being and terrorizing boys in the name of of Christ. 
if you can imagine anything as horrible as that. Um, So that would um, certainly incline you not to pay a whole lot of attention to Christianity. So it's what the New Testament calls a stumbling block. And it's the sort of thing Jesus said, better for you that a millstone were put around your neck and you were cast into the deepest part of the sea than that you should offend one of the least of these little ones. That's one of the things we have to be careful of in the church. How do Bless we God that he powered through that. <laughs> so that was his, his position at Wynyard. At least there was misery in company. But at Malvern, he didn't have that point in common with anyone. So he was a total outsider. And uh, at Malvern, you also have the fagging system, whereby the upper class boys lorded over the lower class boys and the lower class, lower um, grades um, have to serve the upper grades as servants. And you've also got the problem of um, institutional uh, homosexuality that takes place in those kind of settings. Um, and um, Lewis said he d- never had to deal with that, but others did. And so it was it was ghastly. He called it a concentration camp, the most miserable time of his life. Others said, oh, he's exaggerating. Uh, surely the war was worse. But no, it really wasn't. Um, with all the death and, and desolation of the war, in the war, Lewis learned to have friends. And uh, he writes about... Um, his experience there in the trenches and um, comradeship and just the very idea of death itself becoming, um, well, a, a, a new perspective on life. And uh, so he was having comradeship with people from all ranks of life that he'd never encountered before because he'd always had that, that, that slice, that careful slice of the um, British society, people like him. And so uh, when he said that it was worse than the war, it, it really was. Wow. That's amazing. And yeah, I mean, not having a community, not feeling like you belong, not getting your identity validated in any way, shape or form. It's probably one of the toughest things. I agree. Which things started to change though with, Kirkpatrick. So we've got these preschooling. He's really struggling to fit in. There's an arrogance coming. But then he comes to Kirkpatrick. And am I correct? It's this time where he starts to almost be affirmed for, for his worth, which is his intelligence. And it's, it's starting to change for him in this period. Yes. He's, he's, um, Kirkpatrick was his father's headmaster when his father was in school in Ireland. Kirkpatrick mm-hmm. retired to Surrey which is uh, the county just uh, southwest of London. The town of Great Bookham was the town where Jane Austen's, I think her cousin, uh, lived. And uh, the cousin's husband was the rector of the church there. And that's important because that's the town where um, Jane Austen set the story Emma. Hmm. There's a famous Lewis describes arriving at a great book on the train and uh, when he first encountered Kirkpatrick saying something to the effect he was surprised at how wild Surrey was and Kirkpatrick immediately um, began to question him well now have you read about Surrey Uh, have you visited here have you heard people give accounts of Surrey? Why did you suppose it was wild or not wild? And, and so he was testing all of his presuppositions in the way he thought and his basic uh, approach to logic. And Lewis gives that account to demonstrate how Kirkpatrick began to shape his mind to think critically and examine his own assumptions and presuppositions. One of the things I point out in the book is that Lewis actually did have a reason for thinking that Surrey was the Garden of England and not a wild place because he had just read Emma before he went to Surrey. And in in the story, in Emma, one of the characters makes the remark that um, uh, Surrey is the Garden of England. And Emma says, I think not. But there's that idea that Surrey is the Garden of England. 
and um, uh, Lewis had, had probably taken that away and given him a, a, a thought of what Surrey would be like. But anyway, um, his, his years there, he went to live with Kirkpatrick a few days after World War I began in 1914. So September 1914, he's living in Great Bookham, and the Great War, World War I, is underway. He will live with, with Kirkpatrick in 1914, 15, 16, and um, early 17, until um, midwinter of 17. And there, there are lessons in the morning. Uh, in the afternoon, he's free to do whatever he wants to do. In the evening before supper, more lessons, uh, supper, then uh, a few more lessons, and then the rest of the evening he's free to read. And it's, it's hard to overstate the importance of this period for Lewis, because as you say, he got affirmation. He was the only student that Kirkpatrick had. He had one boarding student that he was giving classes. Now, there was another little boy who was living there uh, for a period. Um, but he was doing a course of study in town, and he wasn't having tutorials with um, with uh, Kirkpatrick. So, so Lewis was getting special attention. He wasn't being compared to anybody else. He wasn't having to do the sports in which he failed. Um, but he was athletic, oddly enough. That is, in the afternoon, he would go take a little walk for 10 or 15 miles over hill and dale. And every day he would take these long uh, marches. That, they're the sort of march that um, you would expect um, soldiers to go through in basic training. Only he was doing it for fun. And he loved these, these um, ventures across the countryside. Years later, he would write that um, he ha first had the, uh, the image in his mind of Narnia that first winter he was in um, Great Bookham. He had uh, in his mind the picture of a fawn walking through the snow, carrying um, packages and an umbrella. And um, the forest that he describes, I I've, I've got some pictures of of the countryside that Lewis used to walk through and the countryside he describes in, um, the line, the witch in the war and the wardrobe is in fact the countryside that he walked across to the little village of, of Friday street and across the, the, um, the wild expanses to Leatherhead and, um, all these little, little villages uh, across, um, Surrey. So you've got that going on. But then you've also got um, his purely academic work. He had not studied Greek. He did, he'd been exposed to it, but, but um, Latin was the main language that he, he knew up to that point. Kirkpatrick sat him down with Homer's Iliad and uh, a nice dictionary, Greek dictionary. And um, Kirkpatrick read to him a few pages of the Iliad and then said, there, now you do it. <laughs> and that was his instruction. And so he said, I'll leave you with it. And he left him with Homer and the dictionary. <laughs> and uh, Lewis just dove in and, and started learning Greek. But it's actually, um, it, it's not as wild as it seems. When I was learning Hebrew, my Hebrew professor, who is just a grand, grand fellow. For the first two weeks of class, we read Hebrew without knowing what it meant. That is, we were learning, we learned the letters and then the sounds and then how to put them together. And so we were reading the language before we knew what the language meant. Oddly enough, it's very effective. It's a highly effective way. So, so I think Kirkpatrick was an outstanding teacher. He was extremely patient with Lewis. Um, and Lewis was a quick learner. And so Kirkpatrick enjoyed having Lewis as a pupil. Um, and he said, he, he wrote to uh, Lewis's father, um, you'd, you'd better make up your mind that um, 
the only thing he can possibly do is have an academic life. He's not going to make a barrister. He's not going to go into business. He can't go into government. The, you make up your mind. The only thing he can do is have an academic life. And then that's he had a he was great right. academic life. Uh -huh. I mean, he was suited for it. So you've got that um, that training that eventually would result in him earning a scholarship to Oxford, and he would, in his first degree, study Greek literature, Greek history, Greek philosophy. Uh, and that was the course of study that he undertook. And uh, he got a first, which would be for us magna cum, uh, summa cum laude, 4.0 average, you know, knock the socks out of the competition, that sort of thing. But the other piece of it was his evening recreational reading. Now, this is absolutely critical. In his light recreational reading in the evenings during those uh, years he was there he read around 200 books wow which is pretty good i would say so because he was there for what four years so essentially there a book a week years three uh, to really two and a half years it's almost two books a week <laughs> yeah that's about par for the course for, for lewis he he read now now i have a daughter who reads at that rate too she reads 1,200 words a minute with high, high comprehension, not just comprehension, but retention, and can quote passages. And that was the skill that Lewis had. And it's a physical skill because it has to do with your eyes and how they move. But anyway, he had that ability. But for that reason, he mastered what is known as the English syllabus, that is, all the books that you would be required to read at Oxford University gain a degree in English literature. Lewis had read for recreational reading with high comprehension critically while he was in what we would call high school. Now, that came in handy several years later. He went up to Oxford, got his degree in philosophy, Thought he was going to get a job, couldn't get a job. Tried to get a job, couldn't get a job. He wanted to teach philosophy. And finally he realized, okay, I need to hang around Oxford and maybe get a job. So I'll do another degree in English literature. So he did it in one year. Now, I don't know about you. My college degree took four years. It's hard. I mean, the idea of doing a college degree, not just a college degree, an Oxford degree uh -huh. in one year. It's not because Oxford is easy. <laughs> it's nope. not because they have low standards. And it isn't even because uh, Lewis was very, very smart, which he was. But it's because he had already done all the work. He had done all the reading as a teenager. And he had begun to form his critical apparatus. That is, he'd begun to think critically about the literature and developing his own sense of what should the study of literature look like. We know all the details of how his mind was developing because every week he wrote to Arthur Greaves. Now, let's back up a moment. Mm -hmm. Just, okay, he went to uh, live with Kirkpatrick in uh, September of 1914. And remember, he had no friends at Wynyard, no friends at Malvern. He'd been at Sherberg School, uh, which was a, a prep school before you go to Malvern. Um, he'd gotten along with some of the boys, but not friendship. And just before he went to Kirkpatrick, uh, he found out the little boy across the street, he was actually a few years older than him, was sick and would like a visit. Well, Lewis and, War and his older brother, Warney, had been avoiding this little boy for years. They, weren't, they didn't want to play with him. They didn't, they'd weren't interested in him. They, they just brushed him off. So for whatever reason, Jack agreed to go and visit this boy. It was an act, an unusual act of kindness on his part. And so he went, grudgingly. 
And there sitting on the bedside table in the boy's room was a book of Norse mythology. Well, Lewis had himself become fascinated with Norse mythology uh, in the previous year or so. And all of a sudden, here's somebody else who feels the same way. And it's not thinks the same way, it's feels the same way about Norse mythology. And all of a sudden, they have something in common, and their friendship began around Norse mythology. And so every week, Lewis would write a long letter to his friend Arthur Greaves back in Belfast to tell him what he was thinking, what he was reading, what he liked, what he didn't like. And uh, with it, all the arrogance and the pomposity, uh, because Lewis was a lot smarter than Greaves. But nonetheless, we know what was going on in his head, because he told Greaves everything. He had a friend at last. It was That was something that stuck out to me when I was reading your book. And I feel like this is almost every person's journey, to some degree, of... When you start to find what you love, who you are, your identity, and that starts to form, which sometimes is in high school, sometimes it's in college, sometimes you're really lucky it's before high school, it's amazing how life starts to change for you because you find what you're passionate about, which thus that leads to you finding friends that you overlap with, and you live authentically. And I noticed that very clearly with the Norse mythology for Lewis. Like that was that moment when he really started to figure out like what what did he love and then sure enough boom a friend comes along the way because they they can bond over that and it just seemed very transformational for him uh, kicking off this journey of which would continue well past this i mean he's still finding his identity and then his oxford days as we'll talk about and um, after that as a fellow and stuff but this seemed like the very beginning of of this independence is finding this identity he's kind of distancing himself a bit from his father and warney and just really coming into his own around this period and arthur greaves did a lot for lewis lewis pays tribute to him in surprise by joy that lewis failed to teach arthur anything about arrogance and pride and yet Arthur managed to teach him all about humility and kindness. <laughs> so That's incredible. It's, it's, a nice, it's a nice story. But the other thing is Arthur played a crucial role in Lewis developing as a writer because the whole time he was in Great Bookham, he kept having grand ideas about writing, and he tried to write an opera, and he tried to write, oh, a grand epic poem, and he started writing uh, short pieces, but he was wanting to collaborate with Arthur for a long time, but he realized Arthur really isn't going to be a writer. Then Arthur took up painting instead of writing. Um, but but nonetheless, all along the way, it was to Arthur that he sent the things he was writing to get feedback. It was w- with Arthur that he shared that. And one of the things we'll see in his life, he didn't necessarily need someone else to talk to about his writing, but having someone else to talk to helped him in his writing. And so that place would be filled later on by the Inklings after the war, by uh, Ruth Pitter with his poetry and uh, Roger Lanslin Green with the Chronicles of Narnia, and finally Joy Davidman Gresham with those books that he wrote the last few years of his life, uh, particularly Till We Have Faces. Mm. With this area of Lewis's life here, where was what, what were the foundations being placed for his Christian conversion? Um, what were some of those key milestones as we kind of bring to a close this first section, this first part, the book of that really laid the foundations for what would ultimately lead to his conversion? Okay, and uh, and remember that the at the end of this book, when World War One is happening, Lewis is not yet a Christian, mm-hmm. so he he is not a Christian in this book. Though I I did tack on a little epilogue that gives you a hint of, of how the conversion took place, but yep. uh, because I thought that was the only book I was going to write at the time, <laughs> weren't envisioning a three volume biography, so this was a one off. Um, but yes, the the um, 
the track on which his conversion unfolded was laid down in his teenage years. The critical piece, once he was a confirmed atheist, and that took place while he was at, at Malvern, then reinforced by Kirkpatrick, who was a, a materialist philosopher, the physical world is all there is, and the only thing you can really know is what you can know with your senses, and if you can't know it through it, your senses, it doesn't exist. That's what he was getting all day long. He was writing about this to his friend Arthur, who was a Christian. And Lewis was always making fun of Arthur's Christianity and trying to explode it with his logic and his reason. And Arthur just was steadfast to his faith, um, no matter what Lewis threw at him. But in the evenings, remember, he's reading books, stories of the great literature of, of the last thousand years. And he comes upon a certain kind of story through the Norse literature. So he's, he's reading about the Vikings, and one of the um, people who retold the Viking uh, mythologies was William Morris, a 19th century novelist, artist, um, major figure in the arts and crafts movement, um, sold um, tiles that uh, adorned every house and wallpaper. And I should make mention of this on the um, the cover of the book is actually a William Morris design. Oh no way! And that's one of those little touches that Crossway added that you know nobody would know it. They don't tell you, but it's one of those brilliant just little little pieces that that uh, I loved about how they designed the cover. So that's William Morris. Um, and so uh, Lewis read his um, Tales of the Vikings, and then he added, Morris had also written about King Arthur and, uh, you know, the retelling of the Arthur stories, and he wrote a book, The Well at the World's End, and it's a story about somebody who goes on the journey, the quest for the great thing. And you suffer every sacrifice. You you give up everything. You um, uh, fight every foe, unbeatable foe, and you do go through every kind of travail in order to gain the great thing at the end of the world. And once you've attained it, you return a changed person. You're not the same person once you've gone to the end of the world. Now, he gives a glimpse of that in um, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, for it's Reapy Cheap who goes to the world's end. But it's the story of um, the quest for the Holy Grail in the medieval romances, and Sir Galahad is the one who goes on the quest and attains the Holy Grail. So this story was tremendously powerful um, in its effect on Lewis. And he realized that uh, William Morris was retelling an older tale. And it's the, it's the King Arthur tales. Uh, you find it in um, Mallory, uh, Le Morte d'Arthur, the death of Arthur. And the, in, 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 in that telling from the 1400s, um, Mallory uh, has the, the quest for the Holy Grail. But it's also found in um, Spencer's, Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, um, about 1595-96. And Lewis fell in love with this tale because it, it created in him again that experience of longing that has a pang to it, uh, almost a painful longing, what he would eventually call joy. And then he found it again in a book by um, George MacDonald called Fantasties. So it's this same plot, this same story, where you, get, you go on this quest and you are changed in the course of the quest. That then is the model for uh, his conversion story in allegorical form, The Pilgrim's Regress. But um, once he... He's a Christian. 
every fictional story he ha- he tells has the same plot. That is, uh, in the science fiction trilogy, you go not just to the end of the world, beyond the end of the world, <laughs> on the great on the great mission, on the great journey, and when you return, you're different from when you went. Chronicles of Narnia, same way. Everybody who goes to Narnia comes back a different person. And so uh, this this story had a huge impact on him. But it's the story of chivalry and duty and honor and courage. And Lewis did not embody these values, but he loved them. Hmm. And he kept coming back to them. And he was conscious of the fact that he was not this person, and yet he loved these stories. And then there's the fly in the ointment. These values aren't real because you can't taste them, touch them, smell them. And then he began to question materialism. Are there, in fact, things that exist besides the physical and our values some of those things. And you find that crack uh, in his materialist shell taking place just before he leaves Kirkpatrick to go up to Oxford and officer training corps and entering into uh, the army as a, what, 19-year-old lieutenant? Was he 19, I think? Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would be asking you that question. <laughs> <laughs> well... I'm I'm a bit like Lewis on on dates, you know. This the world was shaken to its core a few years ago when Alistair McGrath said that Lewis got his own conversion date wrong and surprised by joy. He didn't become a theist in 1929. He became a theist in 1930. Um, <laughs> well, one of the things I talk about in in all three books is the fact that Lewis just could not do chronology and dates. He was hopeless, absolutely hopeless with dates. And um, it wasn't just the date of his conversion. It's all sorts of things. For instance, one of the big events in his literary life was discovering George MacDonald. In Surprise by Joy, C.S. Lewis described how he first became acquainted with George MacDonald on an October evening at the train station in Leatherhead, the town where he went to have his hair cut. Browsing through the bookstall while waiting for his train, he chanced upon a grubby copy of George MacDonald's Fantasies, a fairy romance, in the Everyman edition. It is a lovely memory, but memory often fails us. Lewis actually first came upon MacDonald at the train station on Saturday, March the 4th, 1916, as he explained to Arthur immediately after it happened. So in his memory, it was October, but in fact, it was in March. And that's typical of Lewis. Um, Lewis explained to Arthur um, that he was hopeless with dates and he didn't really do chronology. He thought thematically rather than chronologically. And um, his brother Warney wrote about it in uh, his diary, the hopelessness of, of, of Jack's uh, memory when it came to chronology, when things happened, the order in which they happened. And uh, in Surprise by Joy, he talks about these critical events that happened just before he became a Christian, um, that he uh, had read Alexander's um, book on space uh, and time in which Alexander made a distinction between experiencing something or enjoying it and reflecting on it. And you, you don't think about the experience and have the experience at the same, same time. You can go back and forth, but they're different, they're, they're different things. And, um, until then Lewis had thought that his, um, his experience of joy was all in his head. It was a psychological thing like daydreaming. And um, then he began to realize, oh, no, maybe it's not. Maybe there's an objective reality that is causing this experience. Mm-hmm. So that happened. 
and he um, had started reading uh, Chesterton's uh, The Everlasting Man, and he had begun reading again for the umpteenth time um, The Hippolytus by Epictetus. Now, why was that important? When he was in um, Cherbourg and um, Malvern reading Latin, uh, he'd been taught that, oh, all these old mythologies are just made up stories to explain uh, natural phenomena. And he said, well, then the Bible's the same thing. So he had, he had learned to dismiss the Bible as just another mythology. But in looking at Epictetus, he began to think, well, maybe the Bible is different from just those mythologies. Now, in Surprise by Joy, that happens just before he becomes uh, a Christian, so in the late 1920s. And before that, in Surprise by Joy, he has his great war with Owen Barfield. But in fact, in his life, it's flipped. Those three experiences that he had um, occurred in um, March, within four days of each other, 1924. The Great War lasted, you know, five years or so, five or six years, uh, beginning probably around 1925, uh, 26, and going up through Lewis's conversion to theism. And so he orders things differently simply because the, the memory plays tricks on you mm-hmm. chronologically. And um, he was writing those memories in the mid-1950s, trying to remember what had happened 30 years earlier. And so um, the details of dates were wrong. That's why you always want to go to the primary sources rather than secondary sources, letters, diaries, that sort of thing, which are contemporary with the actual events as they happened. I think that is a perfect spot to wrap part one, and then we'll jump to part two. Good. So listeners, join us next episode when we're going to be doing part two. So we will sign off this here and we will jump into part two. We're going to be talking about his book, The Making of C.S. Lewis, From Atheist to Apologist. And as always, guys, join us on our next episode when we'll be going farther up and farther in. Cheers. <laughs>